if you walked into one of our gym sessions, for example, the it wouldn't look particularly complex, but there was quite a bit of thought and consideration gone into program and session design. So we run a program where we would essentially have one of the primary components was having exercises which had low technical bias so that we could really overload some of those uh, those strength parameters. I remember at the time we would, for instance, we didn't back squat many guys, we didn't Olympic lift many guys. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. We've all been in environments where the strength and power program just isn't quite high enough up the priority list in the organization that we're working in. And it's this that we talked to Shane Lehan today about today. So Shane is at the Sydney Swans but has been at the Melbourne Rebels and Leicester Tigers here in the UK as well. And we look at them contrasting experiences of where the Strength and Power program was the towards the top of the priority list, when he was at Leicester Tigers, to then going to the Melbourne Rebels where it wasn't quite high enough or, or as high on the priority list and how he, how he had to adapt what he did from a programming perspective and a philosophy perspective to fit in with the program. So I think it's a really interesting episode because it's something that many, many of us, if not all of us, have had experience of. So it's great to get an expert in to actually have a little chat around that transition. So Shane's a top guy. It's a good episode you'll get loads from and I look forward to hearing any feedback you've got. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. Also sponsoring this episode is Fusion Sport. Smarterbase from Fusion Sport is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. Built on infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategy, process and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. 
Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems, using smarter bases, robust API and custom built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps and personalized visual dashboards. And with the SmarterBase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand behind it. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash SmarterBase to learn how SmarterBase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. So without further ado, over to the episode with Shane. Shane Lehan, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. I got that surname right, didn't I? You Nailed did. It. You did first time. Nailed it. Nailed it. Good stuff. <laughs> no, Thanks for coming um, on, mate. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Easy. No, I appreciate you having me on. I uh, I listen every week and um, learn something every week. So I hope I can contribute something something back. Absolutely. When someone like Warren Young, as I said to you before, the only person to ever contact me on Facebook Messenger seems to be Warren. But but when he recommends someone, I'm I'm absolutely on it. So it's it's a pleasure to have you. An honour to have you. Um, and just looking into speaking to Warren about you and looking into your background, um, it's an interesting one. I love to see a a Brit or an Irishman overseas and and doing good stuff. So looking forward to having a chat. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Shane, would you mind just giving us a a short bio on you, what you've done before, and how you've ended up in uh, in Sydney? Yeah, easy. I'm um, currently athletic performance coach at the Sydney Swans. I've uh, been here for just over a year now. This is my first year in, in footy, as they call it over here. But uh, prior to that, I spent uh, 12 years in rugby union, um, six seasons with the Melbourne Rebels in Super Rugby, and a little bit of time with the Wallabies during that time as well. And then prior to that, I spent five and a bit years with Leicester Tigers uh, in the Premiership. And then that was my first professional role. And then uh, prior to that, some experience in the Irish rugby system, Ulster, Munster, uh, with the Irish national team. A little bit. I started out actually under uh, Des Ryan and Liam Hennessy, who I know have uh, contributed to to the pro- to the show a fair bit. Two absolute legends. Mm. Two yeah, absolute was, legends. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's funny when you look back. You know, I didn't uh, probably appreciate at the time, but how uh, how lucky I was for my the initial parts of my career to cross paths with people like that. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to frame this episode in understanding where strength and power, strength and power program fits in the performance hierarchy because you've had experiences when it's been high on the list or high up the hierarchy and when it's not been as high in the hierarchy so just looking back to your time at Leicester obviously very successful during the time the the team were very successful in the time that you were there where was it in the where, where did it where did strength and power program fit in that hierarchy and what did that program look like on reflection yeah, as you say, I was I was very lucky to be there. Probably the tail end of uh, the a really successful period. Saracens were just on the way up, and uh, it's great to see them back uh, back champions again this year. But I guess uh, Leicester Tigers are a club with a, a very distinct playing philosophy. They play a very abrasive style of rugby, and at the time, the head coach Richard Cockrell, um, like really epitomised that's that style of rugby. So our, our game plan was essentially built around set piece, collision, big bodies. And obviously to support a game style like that, then strength and power is, is a fundamental component of that. As a result, we had a you know a strength and power problem, which was very much focused on getting guys bigger, keeping guys strong, a very aggressive in-season 
strength and power program. Um, and yeah, that complemented the way that we were trying to to play the game. I think it probably would have been pre my appreciation and understanding maybe of the game model. But certainly, I think uh, when I reflect on that time, we were looking to construct athletes or um, train athletes in a manner which would support the style of, of rugby that we were trying to play. So when you say aggressive strength and power program in season, give us give us give us some examples. We were, we were like, yeah, I guess there wasn't. A, we didn't really have a maintenance phase, if I'm honest. We were being always chasing progressive overload. We ran a, a player watch system at the time. Alex Martin, who was the head of department, who was, is maybe not a name that's known to many people, but is is one of the real leaders in in the rugby union space around, particularly around physiological development. Um, so we'd run a player watch system where we'd have one coach to it'd be maximum of one to two, one to three athletes, really aggressive with prescription, constantly chasing progressive overload, multiple sessions a week, all with the aim of keeping guys big, keeping guys strong, keeping guys powerful so that we could try and dominate opposition at the weekend because that was very much the style of rugby that we were that we were trying to play. Just so we've got a bit of a contrast when we get onto the Melbourne stuff. Um, so multiple sessions a week. So you're playing Saturday to Saturday. What would maybe pick one of them? Maybe use multiple uh, examples of sessions. What did them sessions actually look like, and how how was it? How was it so aggressive? And then we'll use that kind of Melbourne stuff as a bit of a contrast. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and this is a uh, looking back on this program. Now, it's nearly ten years ago at this stage. So it's uh, a the profession and and everyone that was there at that time has uh, evolved in their practice and their thinking since then. But I guess on a very on a very basic level, if you walked into one of our gym sessions, for example, the it wouldn't look particularly complex, but there was quite a bit of thought and consideration gone into program and session design. So we ran a program where we would essentially have one of the primary components was having exercises which had low technical bias, so that we could really overload some of those uh, those strength parameters. So remember at the time we would. For instance, we didn't back squat many guys. We didn't Olympic lift many guys. Um, <gasps> Shane. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Sorry, mate. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, that, that would have been, uh, you know, at the time, we're talking 10 years ago, that probably wasn't that common. You know, there's more of that discussion nowadays about, you know, that there's, um, you know, that there's potentially other methods. And, the, and again, it's not being anything anti the methodology or the principles of Olympic lifting, but we just felt that we could get greater physiological overload through the implementation of low, low technical bias exercises. So we'd, um, I remember we had four or five of those myothruster leg presses that we would have guys on. And it would literally be a case of if you lifted 250 kilos for 20 reps last week, you're lifting 252 and a half kilos for 21 reps this week. And we would do that over and over and over and over again over a 52 week season. Um, and yeah, I think if you walked in and you looked at one of those sessions, it would look quite simple, but there was a lot of thought. I remember Alex Martin, his, uh, his saying, which I've carried forward, or his mantra was a complex in design, simple in execution. So, really, when an athlete came in the, a gym session, you know, you knew you were gripping and ripping for 20 to 30 reps on a big compound lift that had. Um, a minimal technical component and you were doing that repeatedly over and over the course of a, of a season so that so the, the strength element may be traditionally a, a, a back squat that was the alternative was a often a leg press 
So when you say we won't do much Olympic lifting for your power stuff, what was the alternative that you guys were using which with a less technical bias? Yeah, the um, I guess when I look back, it was actually quite innovative at times. We had a, a local engineering company actually who would uh, who would mock up some of our kind of um, harebrained ideas. Remember, we had a almost you know a leg press that you could load up and you'd shoot yourself up a, a ramp and we'd catch it with the um, like a car brake at the top, so we'd get guys to kind of maximally explode up on a forty-five degree angle, and then we'd. We'd bring them back down. We had um, what we call the rampage, but essentially it was a, a tackle bag that you could load up that was on on railings. We had that kind of horizontal force production. We'd uh, put timing gates on that and really drive some competition around that. But I guess, uh, yeah, all those exercises were just were designed to be low system bias exercises, low technical have low technical execution, and then really drive competition around around those those exercises. So you've mentioned at the start around how that linked in with the game model, but how did that how did that interact with other aspects of the game which were been focused on from a technical point of view? Like you mentioned, set pieces been a big thing for for you guys. The set piece been a big thing for you guys. Were you talking to coaches and trying to understand the technicalities of them movements and how we excel, and then trying to drag that into the gym and, and replicate those kind of demands? I, I think we were trying to do that as a department, but I'm not sure that um, a continued dialogue with technical coaches about what they were looking for from an optimal technical execution was there. So I think we were looking to, I think we were looking to do that as a department, but maybe at the time that communication piece could have been, could have been better. And as I said, that's 10 years ago now at this stage, I think probably that conversation generally within the profession has evolved a fair bit within that within that time frame we see aspects of uh, obviously something like tactical periodization for an example has become quite fashionable in the last couple of years but i think at the core of that is the principle of you know the game first and understanding how the team are trying to play and the technical actions that we're trying to support and um i think when i look back on that time i think we were doing a very good job at increasing physical outputs but maybe the bit that was missing was the was the tying it into the technical actions or really understanding the technical and tactical actions that the that the coaches were looking for. And I think that's more of a reflection maybe of, you know, I think the, the industry is maybe a little bit younger there in in terms of integration piece. So on reflect on reflection, before we get into the transition to Melbourne and how that how that differed, on reflection from your time at Leicester, would you do anything different now you've moved on in your practice 10 years? So, for example, using the less technical biased exercises, would that still be a, or is that still a thing that you kind of subscribe to? Or is it, are you happy to move into the more technical based things if it's got the a time and a place? I, I think they're, they're all tools, really. I think the, if I look back on my time at Leicester, I think the real learning and the reflection is I think at the time, I, I had the process in reverse. My thought process was my, pro, my thought process was this is the physical intervention we're going to put in place, be it leg press or back squat or whatever it is. This is the physiological adaptation we're going to get, and then this is how it's going to transfer into a game situation. Whereas now I think that's flipped one eighty, where we're starting with the we're starting with the football, we're starting with the technical action first, and we're starting with the tactical plan first, trying to understand what are the adap- adaptations that support that. And then selecting appropriate exercises, rep schemes, interventions for your group, which support the football program. 
so I think that's a I think that's a learning I think that's probably maybe a shift in the you know in the profession more holistically where there's maybe more of that focus of working working from the game backwards rather than working from physical interventions to adaptations to to performance to the game using AFL in your time at the Swans where you are now is there an example you can give of working that flipped way around I think I'd start that. I started that process anyway. I probably learned that the hard way by the transition to Melbourne. But there's no greater example than when you go into a sport that you're not actually that familiar with, and especially a sport. The an Irish guy who spent ten years in England. My knowledge of of AFL is really squashed into the last five or six years, and most of that as a spectator. And there's some advantages on that. The the real the the advantage of moving into another sport is that the sport provides external reference for you, and you provide external reference. For the sport um and probably the real advantage for me going into football is i have i've spent my whole life in rugby union as a poor amateur athlete and then as a strength and conditioning coach athletic performance coach and as much as you try and remove bias you still have a conception of a preconception of maybe how an athletic performance program should run to support a rugby program going into a sport that you're really learning about you know you're learning the, the nuts and bolts of it when you're in there you're forced to kind of start at a with a blank slate and the start of that process for me is trying to sit down with the with the sports coaches and understand the game plan first and foremost what are some of the key key pillars key tactical pillars that support us trying to win what are some of the technical actions that support that ta- that tactical plan and then every technical action has an underpinning physical component or a supportive physical component so how do we as an athletic performance department, support those physical components that underpin technical actions, which feed into the game plan. That's um, that process, and it's still an evolving process for me. I'm still very much learning, but uh, you know that process was accelerated over my time in in Melbourne. And then, yeah, there's nothing there's nothing to challenge you like moving into a sport where you really just don't have the you don't have the contextual knowledge of of everything that's going on from a technical tactical perspective. We will dive into the town Melbourne in a second, <clears throat> excuse me. But just using that example there of you moving into AFL, let's have the exercise selection as the kind of what used to be the first point of call, part of call, but is now the the last part of call. Can you take us through that journey of a technical movement that you want to want to improve and develop in the game, and then moving backwards to a potential exercise selection to be able to do that in that reverse order as you described? Is that is that all right? Yeah, that that is, and that's actually, um, you know, this has been a big evolution. My thinking, actually, in the last number of years, and I've really been challenged. When I was in the Australian rugby system, uh, I was really challenged by guys like Dean Benton and John Pryor to really consider, you know, what are some of the the underpinning physical components that support technical actions. And, and so, I can give an example from from footy. So the the contest for possession is really an important, an integral part of. Australian rules football, so competing for the ball, either on the floor or in the air, there's a pretty strong correlation between success in that metric and, and game outcome. So then the, the process of me thinking, okay, this is something that as an athletic performance program, as a strength and power program, we need to support. So the first protocol there is sitting with the coaches and trying to understand, create a, a technical model for what that looks like, what good performance around competition on the floor looks like. And in that example, it's the you know it's your ability to drop body height. It's a, the ability to be strong in the face of external perturbations at low positions, 
and then to accelerate out or burst out of that that contest so then you can take those those underpinning technical actions and think okay what are some of the physical components which might support that and so in our program to support to support that scramble or ability to contest for the ball on the floor flexibility and mobility plays a, an important part so sporting actions are not about producing maximal force like they are in the gym they're about producing appropriate force in limited time frames across multiple planes. And, and so guys like Dean Benton and John Pryor really challenged my thinking about um, strength and power prescriptions in, in the last couple of years. And, and I guess my definition of what constitutes strength and power training in the team sport setting is now, is now broader. So if we take that example of competing for possession on the floor, then mobility, flexibility, the actual ability to get into those low positions the coordination aspects of being able to drop your body height and move across planes and scoop a ball off the floor. So some of the coordination-based principles that we get from uh, Franz Bosch and co. And then acceleration components, a model around acceleration development. So you take those those three components and you've got an aspect. You've got a technical model of what a good scramble looks like or a good contest on the floor is. We can work from that, from that technical action and deconstruct the the physical components and then put in place interventions to support that so you've mentioned john you've mentioned dean you've mentioned friends so naturally naturally (laughs) my my thought process goes to some of franz's work which i've discussed with i had the privilege of discussing with john um for an hour and 15 minutes a couple months ago on a more global scale from from franz's work and methodology what influence and how has it influenced your practice over and above what you've just described there well you can probably tell that i spent the last few years hanging around in the in the slipstreams of you know some of the best practitioners in this field so uh yeah you're getting the the watered down version but for me where i've uh, i've really been sold on some of the coordination based principles is that I, I don't think it's an and or for me like there's still room for for general physical development, of, of course there is, but there is time in the in the training week to implement some of these uh, some of these principles. And so, as I mentioned earlier, traditional strength training is uh, generally one plane, singular plane, uh, pre-planned movement, long, relatively long time frames to uh, produce maximum force, and that's and that's not what the sporting actions are like. So I guess where the, the Bosch concepts have started to, to really make sense to me is that they're bridging that gap or starting to bridge that gap between more traditional forms of strength and power training and the actual technical actions that we, we see on the field. And I guess if I look at the pra- practical application of this is, uh, I said, it's not replaced traditional strength training, but instead of a, a warm up now where guys are doing their crab walks and whatever they're doing, we'll have a... We'll start each of our sessions with a, you know, a lower intensity coordination based component, which, which serves as a bit of a, you know, a primer for the upcoming, um, more compound movements, but also you're accumulating, you know, you're accumulating training time. If you're doing five minutes or 10 minutes of that every single day, and you're doing three or four sessions a week, then over the course of the year, then you're, you're accumulating a, a pretty powerful training stimulus there. And I guess, uh, from my experience of it, athletes really enjoy it. They can see, they can see the application. Of course, they're you know they're used to doing their trap bar deadlifts and their bench presses and their chin ups. When you say, look, here is a movement 
here's a coordination movement which is going to challenge you in some of the similar positions that you'll find yourself in play then I think that's a pretty easy sell to an athlete. And I think for me, like we'll see guys, we'll introduce them to some of these coordination-based principles and I'll see them in their session prep or pre-game and you know, it becomes part of their warm-up, inverted commas, routine. But also you're accumulating training stimulus there if you're, if you're getting those small windows at multiple times in the day, in the week and over a course of a season. So um, yeah, I guess that's where it sits to me. It, it conceptually makes sense to me that the principle of it makes sense to me that that's what sport is. It's not about maximal force production in long time frames. It's short time frames, multiple planes, constantly evolving chaotic movements. How can you control that? Um, and it and so it doesn't replace traditional strength training. If there's there's windows to do both. Would you be able to give us an? I hate to sound like a broken record here, but would you be able to give an example of them lower intensity coordination drills that you might do in in the warm up? yeah easy and again look i'll uh i'll credit this a lot of i'm, I'm hanging around the slipstreams of guys like uh you know of john Pryor who've educated me on this but um we'll do we'll do a movement where i'm like it could be a barbell we we do often do with uh, an aqua bag but simply a you know a hinge type movement where they're dropping their hips dropping their chest and maybe transitioning across planes so they're dropping body height quickly obviously you're getting the the variation from from the the water in the bag and then uh, rapidly and violently changing planes and can you control that movement and I look at that that's something that I you know I learned from from uh, JP and JP is just excellent on the application of these principles like I, I read all of Franz's work and watching JP coach for 15 minutes just is you know is is it just changes your opinion on uh, and changes your mindset on where this stuff fits but uh, that's a you know an exercise i picked up for from john around dropping body height around the rock and the tackle but it's it's also highly applicable around the contest in australian rules football it, it, i actually think the movement is maybe the way that john coaches nearly more representative is more representative of some of the positions that afl players get in actually um I so said that that's an easy movement to have in at the start of a weight session or on the field, even as uh, prep to go into a field session or as part of session prep in our prep room in the gym. And so it's not replacing traditional strength training. It's very easy to integrate into your, you know, into the training process. With, with limited time with the, from, from an athletic performance coach perspective, time is limited. So everything in the program has to be justified and one way to justify something is to measure the impact of it. Is it getting better? Yes. Keep it in. Is it getting worse? No. Okay. Is it having the desired effect on the outcome, which is what's going on in the field? How do you measure the impact of those low impact, low intensity coordinative drills? Is it purely, purely coach's eye? Is it purely getting re responses from the athletes to say, like, I think this is, I enjoy doing this. I feel it improves this, this, this. How do you do that? I, look, I think that's it. I think as um, I, I think as a practitioner in this space, of course, you're taking a little bit of a, a leap of faith in that it's a difficult one to objectively measure transfer. It's through conversation with the athlete and, and through conversation with the coaches, and, and that's uncomfortable when you start out. My, you know, my background is in I said very physiological based training numerically been able to quantify progression and overload so it's a it was definitely a shift in minds my mindset and approach when you're saying i can't measure this but it makes sense to me that this would have some transfer to the to the athletic movement but the reality is we're taking leaps of faith when guys are improving their 
back squat and their bench press and their two kilometer time trial but we're taking leaps of faith that those things actually transfer into um you know into into match performance and so i'm i'm getting i've become more comfortable with with being able to let go of that objectivity around the transfer and, 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 you know, work with technical coaches. And there's a lot of you know, subjective qualitative data that you're getting from technical coaches that they can say someone, we think someone's improving at this, or maybe they're not improving at that. And then you have to revisit the, revisit the intervention. But, but I guess my, where I sit on, I think at the top level of most professional team sports, there is negligible, negligible differences between general physical qualities and that supporting the tech, the physical component of technical actions is is probably that that little bit that that can that can help the team or that you can contribute towards the team. And, and I mentioned this pre Rob. I think that's part of the difference. Uh, I, I listened to that interview with with uh, John Clark and Eddie Jones, and and you know, listening to those guys has influenced my thinking as well. Where I think that's the difference between being a strength and conditioning coach and in inverted commas and being an athletic performance coach or someone who supports the the game. I, I remember, uh, I think Eddie Eddie Jones said in that interview that uh, essentially he views people in our position as being an assist another assistant coach with an area of expertise and with their specialist area being physical development or in transfer of physical qualities. So it's a uh, yeah, you have to put the football first or the the game first and support those technical actions. I was going to ask you about that because that was something that you were. In, it was an intentional thing to have your job title as athletics performance coach versus strength and conditioning coach. And like you said, Eddie had spoken about it on episode 300 when him and John came on around that SNC coach or athletic performance coach becoming the assistant. Now, that's in a rugby union environment, like you're very much used to. Can that be the same? Can that be replicated in a Aussie rules environment with that? such close links between the, the physical staff and the technical staff, which Eddie seems to have with England. Look, I, I think that's a, I think that's those relationships with sport coaches are their primary relationship relationships that people in our position need to need to foster. And I think that's how you have a, I know we've got an excellent head coach here, John Longmire, um, who has a long history of success as a as a player in in the nineties and then as a coach since? But I know if I present him with a you know an Excel sheet full of numbers, that's that's not answering the questions that he's that he's asking. You know, we we need to talk about. I, I need to be able to speak the language of of football to him and try. And that's a difficult that's a difficult task for me at the minute because I'm upskilling on a on a new sport. But that's a that's that's the gold standard there. And and I guess it's the difference between developing a player and developing a uh, sorry developing a player versus developing an athlete when you're the athlete part is just driving up these these physical metrics but we're looking to we're trying to balance that with tactical awareness technical proficiency um you know physical prowess and then uh, psychological composure as well you're trying to develop someone who can perform in a match situation and, and i think i'm i think that quote is coming from from Fergus Connolly's Connolly's work, but the goal is not really driving up, in my mind, physical qualities. It's trying to support the coach to win and the organisation and the players to win football games, and the, the physical component is is part of that. 
So finally, in part two, we actually get to the part where we discuss the alternative. So when Shane was at the Melbourne Rebels and the strength and power program wasn't quite as high up the priority list and how his philosophy changed, how his program changed based on that. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Satanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And now back to the episode with Shane. So I've, I've kind of teased the, the, the discussion on the, the transition to Melbourne a couple of times, but as you did alluded to, the, the strengthening power program fitted higher up the hierarchy or high up the hierarchy at Leicester. When you moved to Melbourne, that wasn't that wasn't the case, and you came into some difficulties that we spoke over email, came into some difficulties in trying to bring that program from Leicester into Melbourne. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I guess... Um... I guess I've learned a lot from that transition. I've learned a lot from every transition, actually. I think that's the value of maybe, you know, experiencing different environments and different sports. Um, but particularly, I learned a lot from from that Melbourne example. Um, when I think back at, as I mentioned, my time at Leicester, very established, successful team, very distinct playing style. And the Rebels were a relatively new organization. They're around since 2011. Um, new team, different competition. And I came there, you know, from a successful successful program and thought I knew all the answers and probably created more problems than what I solved in in the short term 
So uh, it's, it's funny, actually, Bryce Kavanagh, is, uh, Bryce Kavanagh brought me into that role and I met Bryce recently and I, I joked, I said, you know, 37-year-old 30, me now wouldn't hire 29-year-old <laughs> me the way, the way he did. <laughs> but um, I've learned a lot from that transition. So, uh, I, and, you know, and Bryce is, what a guy Bryce was to be under. He's another great holistic thinker, a great holistic thinker about performance. So um, he helped me in that transition. But I think I probably caused more problems than what I solved in the short term there by not appreciating uh, different different team, different stylistic demands and how the coach wanted to play, um, different competition structure, and then yeah, where athletic performance or where strength and power is. Well, that was one of my primary responsibilities there, where that fit in the, in the performance hierarchy. Uh, so I guess the you know, summarize my time there. I think I arrived my first year and I said probably a high on ego and overconfidence and thought, you know, my impact was going to be to really, you know, take that Leicester model, really drive up strength and power numbers, and then that will contribute to performance. But there's, there, there's consequences, there's positives and consequences to, you know, to um, aggressively pursuing any goal. And I think I had two, maybe three players you know, miss games in the first two players, I think in my first two or three months there with I mean, minor things, but tight back on a Thursday, they keep Sky out on a Saturday. But for a team like the Melbourne Rebels, where if you lose a first choice player, the next guy down might be, might be a schoolboy. might be his first time being a professional athlete. Whereas at a club like Leicester Tigers, probably your backup is a, your starter is an international, your backup's an international. And the third choice guy is probably an under 20 international. And, and there's just more depth there. And of course, it's it's never desirable to have, you know, a player miss a game because of a, an injury in a in a S&C session. But the consequences of those actions were were higher at, in at Melbourne than what they were at Leicester. And both on the depth of squad and then the competition structure, it was a 15 or 16 game season. If you lose three games in a row in, in the Premiership in November, December, of course, it's not good, but it doesn't define the course of your season. You're in a team that's battling to try and get mid-table or fighting for your first chance to get into finals in Super Rugby, and you lose three games in a row. That can define the course of your season, whether it's successful or not. So, um, yeah, I think that that first season in particular was pretty pivotal in terms of awakening me to the uh, realisation that yeah, my goal is to support the football program and to try and try and understand how I can help the team win games rather than drive up these physical metrics at you know at, at the potential expense of other areas of the program. Although at the expense of those two athletes that miss games, was that do you think that was a, a lesson that needs to be learned for 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 you as a practitioner? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I said, your Bryce was. Um, you know, Bryce was great there during that time in terms of how he managed me and managed that situation, really educated me. But then when I think back, uh, and again, I think it's that, that's part of the transition of going from being a traditional strength conditioning coach to maybe an athletic performance coach or a, an assistant coach, whatever you want, to, you want to term it. But I always remember having a conversation with the, with the head coach at the time, Tony McGann, who I was just in the habit of, I'd take my gym sessions, I'd take the warm-ups, I'd do my bit outside and then I might come, come in out of the field session and get some programming done or get some reporting done or, you know, plan out my next way to get another five kilos on someone's back squat. <laughs> and I always remember having a pretty pointed conversation with, uh, <laughs> with Tony McGann, who was the head coach at the time. And he said to me, he's like, 
how can you appreciate what we're trying to do as a team or what the players have been through if you're not there if you know if you're not out watching what we're doing all the time and um that you know that that real first year in melbourne was part of that i guess awakening process for me where made me realize you know i need to be i need to be sitting in here on team meetings i need to understand what coaches are looking for players i need to understand the the game plan that we're trying to implement um yeah and i need to understand the importance of particular players in our squad and, and the consequences for the team if they're you know if they're not available I, and that's not to say uh, I, I don't think the problem is necessarily being aggressive there because that might be that but that that might be what is what is necessary but the point is i think i was making that that decision independently because i felt that was the best thing to do rather than appreciating what other stakeholders in the organization needed essentially so you described the program in in quite in, in good amounts of depth when it comes to to Leicester. What what was different when it came to to Melbourne? Obviously, you were trying to implement some of the Leicester stuff in Melbourne, but how did that transition from you trying to bring that in to actually you getting on board with the program itself? And what did that program particularly look like? Yeah, I, I guess there was a couple of um, there's a couple of iterations of my time at, at the Melbourne Rebels and, and probably where I felt it was really coming together for a period of time was under uh, Dave Vessels who who succeeded Tony McGann I, I guess my thought process was evolving the whole time there and then when Dave came in the, the advantage of being in a team like the Melbourne Rebels is it's such a it's a pretty small backroom staff like especially compared to some of the bigger organizations in in Europe and you know we had we had six people in the, our combined medical and SNC department. We sat on desks right next to the coaches, and it was a much more close knit group of coaches. And so we were kind of going through a bit of a process collectively. We're trying to where we were trying to define what Rebels Rugby looked like and, and how we could be successful. And and as a result, it was a really cohesive, multidisciplinary approach to how we how we could develop a program there. So I guess again it started they uh, at the time we had some really exciting players with Will Genia and Quade Cooper and Marika Corey Betty and some really attacking base players. And you know essentially the the mold the way rugby's been going really has been to you know kick more and more ball out of play time whereas we were trying to do the opposite. We felt that was the way that we could be successful. So then as a result your athletic performance program or your strength and power program needs to be modified a little bit to support that. So I guess, uh, yeah, my my time there was, or when we reached this point, it was, you know, the evolution of quite a few years of thinking, but there's obviously commonalities across strength and conditioning programs or athletic performance programs. You go into pretty much any team sport in the world and everyone's doing some lower body strength and hamstring work and they're sprinting, et cetera. But for me, it's like that, uh, it's like that DJ fader system where, now, depending on how your team's trying to play, you're dialing up your exposure to certain components and you may be dialing back others. Um, and so for us, we were trying to keep the ball moving, real fast-paced team. So things that maybe aren't common in every rugby program, but we weren't particularly concerned with getting guys really big. We wanted guys who were a bit lighter, could move the ball around quicker. We had a high volume of plyometric work, um, high volume of acceleration mechanics and sprint mechanics and contextual speed mechanics and um, all that stuff played a more significant role in, in that program to try to support that more expansive fast-paced style of rugby than it would say at my time at, at Leicester Tigers and I said probably the, the learn yeah the, the the real like learning and reflection piece there is the 
is it starting from the football first? Like, what are we trying to achieve as a as a football team, and how can I how can I best support that rather than these are the physical metrics which I think are important, and I'm going to drive those physical metrics up to uh, to justify or validate my position in this organization. Essentially, I think that's an interesting that's an interesting last little point there. Justifying your position with an organization to say I've done this, I've done this. He's gone from back squat of. 180 to 190 in so many weeks look at look at this i've done i've done my job here this is how i'm been defined and i get that i get that's definitely a relatively easy way not that's easy to do but it's an easy way to present and justify a position but when it becomes a bit more murky it makes people nervous especially on the younger side and the younger practitioners like you said it's taken you what 10 years to get to that point of being happy to not have a number to put on something. So what I'm yeah, what I'm trying to say is those out there who are potentially listening and going, I'm in that position. Everyone's in that position, I think, at some point in their career that they need to feel like they have to put a number on there to justify their own job or to it within a program. It's it's normal. No, I agree. And look this um you know, it's something that, that people know. I used to see it in rugby union a lot of time where, you know, we would we'd post GPS reports and we were we had players coming to our sports scientists at the end of the session, seeing how far they'd ran and what their high speed running was and what their max velocity was. And players could get in the habit or can get in the habit. I've seen this in programs where they're judging the quality of their sessions on their physical outputs. And I would see this in rugby union. And there's actually some really good research in AFL uh, Courtney Sullivan, who's part of Aaron Coots's group, um, did some really good work with, I think it's with Carlton, where uh, she found uh, an inverse relationship between physical outputs and successful technical actions, and an inverse relationship between physical outputs and coaches' perceptions of players' performance. And, and, and like we know that there, it's not who can run around the most and who's the strongest that is that is you know efficiency is the is the key thing being having a having a phd in your sport is the thing that helps you be you know an elite team sport player and be a good operator so um yeah you need to have an appreciation of where you're where you sit and how you affect team performance and, and that's where i think kpis are, are really interesting like physical kpis where i, I you know we benchmark all our players on a, a we take loads of objective data and we benchmark all our players and we have a benchmarking system. And I actually had a conversation here with our, our GM football and he was like, you know, this is a good mark to see if guys are improving. And I was, we were speaking about KPIs and I actually think the, the presence of physical KPIs is potentially highly detrimental in a, in a team sport environment. If you're judging an athletic performance department on physical outputs um, and improvement in those physical outputs, then potentially you have members of your support staff who are motivated by outcomes which potentially do not support maybe they do but they potentially don't support what you're trying to achieve as a team or an or an organization um yeah so i think it's it's an interesting you know it's it's an interesting dilemma where you you have to obviously you need some objectivity but it's um it's not more is better how did he react to that did you put that to him when you were discussing that with the gm yeah, 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 I did. And like we didn't, uh, these benchmarks weren't designed to be, um, 
use as KPIs for my role. We were just simply trying to get, especially me coming into a new sport, I'm trying to get an idea of maybe what, a, you know, an elite performer looks like at what's their 2K time trial and what's their max speed and what sort of strength levels do they have. But, um, you know, even with, within our squad, you can see that a lot of our best performers are not the guys who score highest, you know, not always the guys who score highest in these in these physical metrics, which is which is no surprise. Um, but but it was interesting having that conversation with him. He, uh, yeah, he was very open to the conversation. I think when I said that, I think it's uh, potentially detrimental, and I think it encourages potentially as the or has the potential to encourage behaviors which aren't aligned with what we're trying to achieve as an organization. I think he was um, pretty supportive of that in the end. I'd just like to take the next couple of minutes just before I let you crack on with your evening, just to discuss a little bit around, I know it's in early days, but around your PhD, decision-making process for strength and power programs in team sports. And we've kind of gone into this anyway with the decision-making process in, in, in three environments that you've been in. But why is this important to you? And how do you think that this is going to help you, but also the, the wider community for, for doing this work? developing this framework yeah i guess uh you probably got the theme of talking to me for the last uh, 45 minutes or so that that um kind of where i sit now in terms of what my role is and what i'm trying to do has been very much shaped by the varied experiences that i've uh, that i've had and it's funny pre-covid i was um i was taking a player that we had at melbourne through the kind of end stage of his acl rehabilitation and at the time i read um, matt tabiner's work on the control to chaos continuum and it really resonated with me that the his work not the i think we were doing something similar anyway we had this kind of continuum but i read that i read his work and thought geez if i was a, a guy starting out something like this would be really beneficial to help me make decisions around you know around interventions and even as a you know, reasonably experienced practitioner it helped me kind of reframe where where we were on this journey and um yeah, I guess over the course of uh, the COVID situation, plenty of conversations with Warren Young and my supervisory team and discussing, it really started as a discussion around my experiences and when I thought, you know, some of the some of the difficulties or decisions you had to make in, in our roles. Um, yeah, out of the back of those conversations, it turned into a potential study. But I guess what I would like to do is maybe at the end point is, you know, take an accumulation of my experience and maybe other practitioners experience and maybe create some sort of framework around decision-making for athletic performance interventions in the team sports setting. And, and I guess the end goal there, Rob, is that if, if you take my role tomorrow as athletic performance coach at the Sydney Swans, we can convince you to move over to uh, this side of the world. And there's <laughs> a framework for you to refer to that might help you, you know, make decisions there. And, and for me, it's not about, you know, if we come back to the, back squat and leg pressing or Olympic lifting. It's not the exercises, sets and reps. I think that's, you know, that's trying to pick the appropriate tool that that's the, the art of choosing an, an intervention, but more decision-making process around, yeah. What are the needs of the sport? What are the stylistic demands of the team? What are the organizational goals, um, athlete profiling and how you can, how you can, use that information to hopefully make some decisions in, in the team sport environment and maybe uh, fast track some of the, the errors and learnings that, that I've made over the years. And save, save Bryce, save Bryce and his job back then in Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why he took off to, to that role at the FA. <laughs> 
No, what a guy though, Bryce. Anyway, I really appreciate. It. I think that's a good place to to end in terms of what's what's going to be happening from from your perspective with that PhD and what you're looking to achieve. But anyone that wants to keep up to date with what you've got going on PhD wise, work wise, just you, social media guy or not? Yeah, I'm a bit inactive on social media. Instagram, you're just probably going to see pictures of my daughter and me at uh, various scenic locations around Australia. But uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect professionally. And um, just on that, Rob, I'm really keen to connect and, and talk to people. This um, yeah, My PhD study is obviously you know, a realisation of my own experiences, but I'm keen to tap into other, other people's experience there as well and hopefully contribute something back to, to the industry and to the field. Sounds good. Well, I'm going to thank you again. Really appreciate you fitting me into the the hotel room that you you stayed in tonight. Um, And look forward to keeping in touch and chat to you soon. Easy, Robin. Thanks for having me on. I think I I said to you beforehand, a bit of nerves coming on tonight. It's uh, like what you're doing is great for the industry. And uh, I listen to it every week. It's a great source of personal and and professional development for me. So I appreciate you giving me the time. My pleasure. And don't worry about those nerves. Do it Get nerves every single week. So no dramas (laughs) there. But thanks again, mate. Really appreciate the kind words. Speak soon. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to episode 409 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Shane for giving up his time actually doing it, doing the podcast in a hotel post-game. So I really appreciate that. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Fusion Sport, Satanta College, Omega Wave, and our brand new sponsor, Team Builder, for sponsoring this episode today. Really appreciate all their support. And of course, for you tuning in to listen to this podcast week after week, or whether it's just every now and again, I really do appreciate your support. Thanks again, and look forward to chatting to you next time.